Hi, Voucher Scam listeners. Claire and Nicole here with a quick update before we play this week's episode. The third special session that Governor Greg Abbott called to get vouchers passed ended on Tuesday, November 7th. House Democrats and rural Republicans remained firm in their opposition to a voucher bill. And this is a huge victory for public education supporters. But hours after the session ended, Governor Abbott called yet another special session. He is determined to have vouchers in Texas. So the clock has been reset and it will be ticking down for the next 30 days. We will be holding our breath until December 7th. Voucher proponents are pulling out all the stops to entice rural Republicans to flip and support a voucher bill. The new voucher bill is said to increase the amount of money each public school district receives per student in exchange for a voucher program. But as we've learned in this series on education vouchers, giving even an inch would devastate public schools long term. The fight is not over, and we will continue to make the case that vouchers are a scam. We must support public education in Texas now more than ever. And we have a special opportunity for you to get involved at the end of this episode. Okay, that's the update. Here's the show. One day, back in 1998, San Antonio teacher Diana Herrera started to see something strange happening at her school. I had parents coming to me and saying, I'm going to withdraw my child. Why? What's going on? Well, we're going to a private school and they're giving us a voucher money for this. Students at Diana's school were being recruited for a special school voucher program in San Antonio in a district called Edgewood ISD. Teachers are saying, well, something's going on, something's going on, what's going on? Edgewood knew nothing that was coming toward us, nothing. Administration did not know that this program was coming into Edgewood and was going to start offering a voucher and kids were going to start leaving our school. Edgewood is on the west side of San Antonio, and it's one of the poorest school districts in Texas. And back in the late 90s, it was also the site of a little-known 10-year voucher experiment. A small school district, 16 square miles, and they're coming in with vouchers, but they're only taking my gifted students at every campus. You've handpicked your students. It was called the Horizon Scholarship Program, and it had a price tag of $50 million. Today on The Voucher Scam, we're going to zero in on Edgewood because it is the central station in the battle for equality in Texas public schools. I, like at this very exact moment that vouchers are coming back into view, and and they've never left us. They've they've never left us. Every time they reconvene, here we go again with vouchers. And then the the last day in May comes around and, you know, they they shut down without even discussing, you know, the, the inequities in funding. It turns out that if you scratch the surface of what's happened at Edgewood, you'll see a much longer history, one that is rooted in racism and classism. I'm Claire Campos O'Neill. And I'm Nicole Abshire. And this is episode three of The Voucher Scam. Let's pick up with Diana and the Edgewood experiment with vouchers. They selected supposedly, allegedly, the Edgewood Independent School District because they were going to bring a, a quality education to the poor children of Edgewood. When students started mysteriously leaving Edgewood ISD, teachers and staff members were caught off guard. Seemingly overnight, students unenrolled. The district reached out to Diana for help. 
And my administration said, get Diana. Diana graduated from Edgewood. Her mama graduated from Edgewood. Get her, you know? And I had already been involved with the history of the school district because I knew it. I, had, I was living it. Diana had been teaching at Edgewood ISD since 1974. The Horizon Scholarship Program rolled out in 1998. This was a voucher program that was spearheaded by a multimillionaire named James Leininger. If that name rings a bell, it may be because his name came up in episode two. James Leininger was one of the founders of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and one of their top priorities is school privatization. So when Leininger surprised Edgewood ISD with this voucher experiment, one of the first things Diana saw was her gifted and talented students disappearing from her classroom. As the GT teacher, I can see that they're pulling my GT kids. So at that point, we're looking at, we're saying, well, wait a minute. These private schools are handpicking our students. For many of the families who tried the voucher program, it did not live up to what it promised. And it created some chaos in Edgewood Public Schools. And I had one of the parents come back to me. Oh, I'm going to say a month later. She said, Miss Herrera, we're coming back. And I said, what's going on? She says, she's way ahead of them. They're not meeting her needs. The voucher program was pulling the most advanced students from Diana's classroom. But when they got to the private schools, those schools did not have advanced programs for them. And being that she is an identified gifted child, there is not an identified gifted teacher. So she came back. Students left, students came back. Some families with extra challenges found that they were not welcome in private school at all. And then we had a child, adorable, beautiful kid. And I remember the mother coming into the office and yelling, and I'm I'm talking about yelling and screaming, and I'm going to take my four children out of here, and they're going to get a better education, and they're going to go into a private school, and and y'all aren't any good, and I I hate y'all. So the family leaves. We find out, because Edgewood is small, (laughs) we find out that that school, that private school that they went to, They kicked her out and the kids because of the problems they were having with mama being demanding, right? So she goes to another private school, signs them in. And of course they welcome because that's going to be, you know, what, three, six, nine, 12, you know, $12,000 here. Sure enough, didn't take long for them to realize it. Here she comes to our school. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I'm bringing them back to you. And we had no choice but to accept the family back. Once again, the public school system, we must accept them and bring them back. And for many families, wanting to enroll your child in a private school wasn't enough. The private school had to want them back. Just to linger on this point, this is one of the main reasons that vouchers are a scam. School choice cuts both ways. While parents might be enticed by the idea of being able to afford private school, there is no guarantee that private schools will take your child. As a case in point, Diana told us this story. We had a little girl in a wheelchair severely disabled in high school, at Kennedy High School. And the mama, more than anything, I, re- I recall listening to the mama cry. And, and she said, but I want my daughter in a private school so she can pray every day and so they can pray every day. That was her reason. And the school refused her because she was in a wheelchair and they didn't have the funding to take care of this special needs child. And it wasn't just kids with disabilities that weren't being served by the voucher program. 
you know, they were not taking our Spanish dominant children, not taking them because they didn't have fully certified bilingual teachers. They were not taking our special ed kids at all. They may have taken some of the upper special ed identified kids, but some of the others who seriously needed special education, they were not taking them at all. Once again, the public school system, because we're state funded, we could not turn down a child, but the private school could. The Edgewood experiment was funded by conservative billionaire James Leininger, and it promised to bring quality education to poor students. But in practice, it served mainly advanced students with no extra needs, and many other students were left behind. It's, of course, hard to generalize, and in some select cases, individual students and families may have been helped by the program. But overall, the program created chaos and confusion. Instead of uplifting the Edgewood ISD community, it only served to divide it. And yet, for decades, voucher proponents like Dr. Leininger have claimed that vouchers foster public education equity. At this point, we want to go a little deeper into the history and explain why Edgewood was chosen for this experiment in the first place. We'll return to Diana in a moment, but we want to take you back to the origin of vouchers in Texas. Well, interestingly, their origins in Texas go back to seg- uh, desegregation. The Brown v. Board of Education spawned, of course, a backlash here in Texas. We are in the South. That's Forrest Wilder, a writer and editor at Texas Monthly. We've heard from him throughout this series. And the legislature studied ways to get around desegregation and one of the ideas was was vouchers. As a matter of history, this was white Texans trying to figure out how to use the instrument of government to escape having to put their kids in schools with black kids. After the landmark Supreme Court ruling in Brown v. Board of Education, many politicians in Texas were not on board with school integration. And in 1954, Texas Governor Alan Shivers formed a committee in response to the Supreme Court's decision. The governor's committee's goal? To find a legal way to stop integration from happening. In their recommendations to the governor, the committee wrote that they did not believe that integrated education was a satisfactory choice for parents. Here's an excerpt from their 1957 report. The abolition of compulsory education in such situation gives the parent a choice. The choice of an integrated education for his children or no education. We do not believe that this is a satisfactory choice, and accordingly, we recommend that the legislature give serious consideration to some sort of tuition grant plan, whereby a parent who does not wish to place his child in an integrated school may receive state funds to have the child educated in a segregated, non-sectarian private school. Such aid should be given only upon affidavit that the child was being withdrawn from the public schools due to the parents' dislike of integration. A tuition grant plan, meaning vouchers, and given due to a parent's dislike of integration. In other words, the birth of vouchers in Texas originated as a direct backlash to the Supreme Court's mandate to integrate public schools.
We wanted to understand more about the history of vouchers in Texas, so we reached out to Jaime Puente, the Director of Economic Opportunity at Every Texan. 1954, Brown versus Board of Education ruling. That really was the mark of the modern civil rights movement. And in Texas? That's the first instance that we have of a state committee recommending a voucher program. And they were specifically designed to go to students who wanted to attend a segregated school. In the wake of that report, the very next legislative session, a number of bills were filed to resist the efforts to desegregate society in Texas. And of course, one of them was a voucher bill. Following this report, the first voucher bill hit the Texas legislature in 1957. For a time, it looked like the governor and the Texas legislature might have figured out a loophole to avoid desegregating public schools. But there was a key figure who stood in the way. And as it turns out, he was from San Antonio and represented the Edgewood District. Henry B. Gonzalez and his fellow senators, they decided to filibuster in the waning days of that legislature in 1957. Henry B. Gonzalez was a state legislator, and he was known for having the longest filibuster in Austin. They spent about 32 hours, Henry B., 22 hours on his own, filibustering the segregationist package of legislation being proposed that year. His filibuster killed the House bill for a tuition grant. And the tuition grant was a voucher for the racial segregation bill. Now, that didn't, it didn't pass since then. And, and I'd say, I think primarily in the last like three decades, there have been multiple attempts to get through some kind of voucher program in Texas at the state capitol. And the votes have at times been really close, but they have not succeeded. During the first battle over vouchers in the Texas legislature, Henry B. Gonzalez, or Henry B. as he's affectionately known in San Antonio, blocked the bill with his filibuster. But it was a defensive win, meaning he stopped the bill from passing, but unfortunately, there was a lot of resistance to desegregating schools. Throughout the 1960s, the inequities between school districts grew. By the end of the decade, many students were ready to go on the offensive to demand change. They started protesting. And students in Edgewood were among those that protested. By 1968, you get students in, in Edgewood ISD who are tired of being subjected to racial discrimination. And they said, we are taking this into our own hands. We are going to stage a walkout. And we are going to demand better for ourselves and our community. Before the walkout, Edgewood ISD had built two brand new high schools, and it brought the poor conditions at Edgewood High School into sharp contrast. So here we were at Edgewood. We were saying, they're air conditioned. You know, they've got all the new tables. And here we were standing against the walls in the cafeteria. And when people would get up because they finished eating, then a group would aggressively go and take over the table because we did not have enough tables and chairs for lunch. We were sharing up to 30, 36, 38 
students in a classroom and we didn't have a new curtain in the on stage and, and in the, the broken windows and the fans that were in the classroom cluttered and clinked and made noise and the teachers would have to unplug them just to speak and then they'd plug the, the fans up again. So all of these things became reasons for the walkout. After 400 students walked out of their school to protest conditions, Edgewood parents filed a lawsuit. Rodriguez v. San Antonio. They argued that because the state funded public education through property taxes, their low-income district was severely underfunded compared to other districts. Federal District Court in Texas ruled in their favor. And for about three years, public education advocates were very happy. After the 1971 district court ruling, Texas worked diligently to try and figure a way to subvert it. And they ended up filing a challenge that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the ruling from the Supreme Court for the Rodriguez case basically said that there is no constitutional right to education federally. And also that using property taxes, even though it's an inherently unequal method of financing public education, that's okay too. This was a landmark ruling and a major setback in the effort to establish equality across public schools. The Supreme Court agreed with the argument that using property taxes to fund public schools is indeed inequitable. But because there was no constitutional right to a public education, they left the current funding system in place. This was a controversial ruling and, in our opinion, a terrible one. And so that... 1973 Rodriguez case, that set back the efforts to advance equity in public education, not just in Texas, but nationally, even though Thomas Jefferson believed that public education was essential to building a cohesive democracy, even though Abraham Lincoln believed that state-funded education is essential to a cohesive democracy The Supreme Court in 1973 said, nah, not so much. Before we get to what happened next in Edgewood, it might be worth pausing to answer the question, why exactly do so many of these major milestones happen in San Antonio and Edgewood? San Antonio has long been a site of contact and conflict. From its very beginning, it it is this quintessential space in the borderlands where you have people who have been there versus people who are coming to try and build something new out of what they found. The Mexican-American community, specifically in San Antonio, represents that long-standing desire to build a, a home, a community. It represents a microcosm of the effects of our school finance system across the state, but in this one very particular space where you have Edgewood ISD, which is one of the poorest districts in the state, about five and a half miles away from one of the most wealthy districts in the state, which is Alamo Heights. You really get to see the contrast of the inequality of our system right here, right smack dab in the confines of one West Side San Antonio community. After the Supreme Court's ruling in Rodriguez v. San Antonio, families in Edgewood ISD did not give up. They regrouped and strategized their next move, thanks to one key leader, Dr. Jose Cardenas. Dr. Jose Cardenas was the superintendent um, throughout the Rodriguez court case. In the wake of the, that, that 
terrible 1973 Rodriguez ruling, Dr. Cardenas was like, look, I I can't continue to do what I need to do. So he resigned from his post reluctantly. He wanted to prove with his data that Texas was funding schools in an inequitable manner. And it took him about 10 years to do that. And so that's when we get to Edgewood v. Kirby in 1984. Edgewood ISD v. Kirby was the next landmark case. This one went before the Texas Supreme Court. The plaintiffs, Edgewood ISD, made the case that the method the state used to pay for public education through collecting local property taxes was intrinsically unequal. And this time, Dr. Cardenas was prepared with indisputable data. And so what Dr. Cardenas did, and like this just shows how brilliant the man is, right? Like in 1973, he went out and bought a computer before most people even knew what a computer was. And he worked with other brilliant people um, to collect and build a data set that would then prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Texas was funding schools in an inequitable manner. The Texas Supreme Court unanimously ruled that the Texas school finance system did violate the Texas Constitution. Because of the data Dr. Cardenas collected, the justices could not deny that the system was inherently unequal for communities like Edgewood ISD. Which brings us to the 1990s. Because of the ruling in Edgewood ISD v. Kirby, school funding had to change. So the Texas legislature developed a system to more evenly distribute funding for public schools. And so after Edgewood II, we get what we call the Robin Hood system or recapture. Here is how recapture or the Robin Hood system works. It's called Robin Hood because the state takes tax money from rich districts and gives it to the poorer ones. Property-rich districts like Alamo Heights collect a lot more money in property taxes because the property in that area is expensive. Districts like Edgewood are considered property poor, so they collect less money from property taxes. So with recapture, the state of Texas redistributes the money collected from property taxes amongst all the districts in Texas. Recapture was essential and still is absolutely essential to making sure the Texas public education system is at all equitable. It still isn't, but with recapture, we at least get to a, a basic level of equity. As we've gone through this history, one of the patterns we hope you'll notice is that any effort towards progress, equality, and desegregation are almost always met with backlash. So the Supreme Court rules on Brown v. Board? Texas politicians dream up vouchers. Henry B. Gonzalez filibusters vouchers, and the gap between rich and poor school districts widens. Students protest for better conditions, and the Supreme Court rules against them. A superintendent sacrifices 10 years proving inequities, and the state drags its heels. This brings us right back to where we started in the late 90s. Robin Hood and the push to create a more equitable public school system provoked a backlash. Enter conservative billionaire Dr. James Leininger and his $50 million voucher experiment. So in 98, 99, when Leininger came in with his concept, Edgewood didn't have low-performing schools. Yet they selected Edgewood to come and save the children. Why Edgewood? Because by the mid-1990s, that was the center of the school finance fight in Texas, right? We already had two two court cases 
telling Texas that is unequally educating students because of the lawsuit coming out of this district. This is payback because of our lawsuit, the lawsuit we continued, continued because to this minute, we're still fighting for equity and funding, you know, so this is payback. The history is that it's, it started and started as a backlash to desegregation and kind of evolved from there and then picked up at some point by like well-funded folks on the political right. And through James R. Leininger and a couple of donations, they offered $50 million, but the $50 million was a 10-year program that they were looking at. 10 years. The Edgewood Voucher experiment showed that low-income communities need a long-term, multifaceted approach to improving their public schools' outcomes, not just a quick infusion of cash. It was a flash in the pan. It was the attempt to create a unicorn in one of the poorest, most underserved, marginalized communities in the state. You're not just going to give a few thousand dollars to a student and, and send them to a private school and see them excel just on that alone, right? There's a reason why schools, districts like Edgewood require multiple services and and very often need social workers in their schools because the students need different supports. And there probably were some success stories amongst the students who participated in that program, but the vast majority of those students did not come out with better educational outcomes. It was not for the right reasons. It had nothing to do with the education of the children. They took away millions and millions from our school district during that time when they were trying to prove nothing, nothing, because those kids ended up coming back to us. If you're looking for an example of a voucher success story, the Edgewood experiment is not it. We asked Jaime if, given this history, he sees a clear link between segregation and vouchers. Oh, yeah, um, definitely. Vouchers would very much reinstantiate modern segregation. And they tell it, they tell it to you. And in, in every single bill filed by the, by the legislature this year um, supporting vouchers, it's explicit. We are talking about recreating a, a, a separate and unequal system of education for students with special education services. That's not even considering the fact that the bills also explicitly allow private schools and private entities to determine for themselves who they admit and who they don't admit. And even more so gives them immunity from recourse by people who may feel that they're being discriminated against. So should any form of voucher be established in Texas, it would immediately resegregate our public school system more than it has been since the 1950s. We've told this story as an effort to show where vouchers originated and why they're being pushed in Texas. Vouchers are intended to take us back to a separate and unequal educational system, but we can still stop them from happening in Texas. Because we all have power to make change happen. We can all speak up for our communities. So before we end this episode, we want to share one more story from Diana. I'm going to tell you my proudest, proudest moment. 
In 2005, school vouchers went up for a vote in the Texas legislature. Based on her firsthand experiences with vouchers in Edgewood, Diana was planning to drive to Austin to testify in person against it. But at the last minute, her young son got very sick and she couldn't leave him. So what I do is I come to the computer, I get the phone, and I'm going down the list of every Republican Texas legislator, and I'm calling their office number, San Antonio, Houston, Dallas, wherever their office is, and I'm leaving my comments to them. I call New Braunfels. New Braunfels was Representative Carter Castile's district. Representative Castile was a former teacher and a Republican who was well-known for her fire and brimstone-style support of public education. And I'm speaking to a young lady, and I said, please tell our legislator to please say no to vouchers. Please don't let this happen. And she says, Miss Herrera, don't hang up on me. I'm positive she wants to speak to you. And I said, okay. So I'm holding, holding, holding. All of a sudden, she says, Diana, you're from Edgewood? It was Representative Carter Castile herself. I said, yes, I am. I'm, a, I'm an educator, and I'm here at home. I'm supposed to be up there right now. You know, where are you? She says, I'm on the floor. And I said, oh, my goodness. She says, tell me why. And I give her my reasons. She gets to the podium, and she says, I just got through speaking to Diana Herrera from Edgewood in San Antonio. And she kept the vote from going forward. And we stopped vouchers right there that year. And everybody up there said, where's Diana? Where is she? Because I had said, I'm not going to make it. Well, I'll be darned if I didn't connect with the best woman in the world. Everything she said were my words, and they put it to a vote, and it did not reach the floor because they wanted to put it on the floor to take a vote. So that has been my greatest moment. Thanks for listening to this episode. For an upcoming episode, we actually need your help. We need your voices literally. We're creating an episode where we're going to share stories, experiences, and perspectives from our listeners. We've created a call-in link where you can leave us a message. Go to the show notes for this episode and use a link to follow the directions. We're asking listeners these questions. Tell us what you love about your public schools. What's one amazing thing that your public school offers? How are you feeling about the push for vouchers in Texas? And for folks not in Texas... How have vouchers affected your schools? And what messages of encouragement would you give us in Texas to fight vouchers? And on our next episode of The Voucher Scam... I love the idea of schools as a community hub. We also have to be realistic about what schools can and can't do and acknowledge that if we keep heaping on them expectations that they can't meet, that just fuels the disappointment that the privatizers depend on. We'll hear from all of our past interviewees and a new special guest as we examine the purpose of public education. I feel like you have to have a robust system of public education, not just to, so people can get educated and go get jobs and all that, but also just to have like some kind of social fabric. 
making that fabric or keeping it together can be very messy, it could be very ugly, sometimes it doesn't work, but that's the whole thing about democracy itself too. And what do we lose if we don't have public schools? Well, I think it's important to maintain our public school system because it helps the most amount of kids across the state, regardless of their income, regardless of their uh, family beliefs or where they came from. It should be there for everyone. The Voucher Scam was created by me, Claire Campos O'Neill and Nicole Abshire. Our producer is Michelle Dahlenberg. Michael Osborne provided production oversight. Heather Stewart is our audio engineer. We use music from Blue Dot Sessions and APM Music. Special thanks to Nancy Thompson, Scott White, and 14th Street Studios. The Voucher Scam is a production of the Mothers for Democracy Institute.